Amen. Lay aside your garments that are stained with sin. What thing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ can cause an entire group of people to sing praises about blood? What an incredible thing that we find our hope in, in shed blood this morning. That we hope that your hope has been found in Jesus Christ and that you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And if not, as David said, we want to offer you an opportunity today to respond to the gospel. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you today, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. If you did not bring a Bible with you today, there are some complimentary Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Uh, please feel free to use one of those and take them with you if you need a copy of God's Word today or if you know someone who would need a copy of it. We are in the fifth week as we journey through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi talking about this theme of the joy of Christ-centered living. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. Before we read God's Word and start uh, this today, I want to draw your attention to just a couple of events that we have coming up later on this year, but I'm going to go ahead and put on your radar. In your worship guide, on the back of your worship guide, you will see, men, that there is an announcement for the Gridiron Men's Conference, which, which will be taking place at the Birmingham Jefferson Civic Center on June 14th and 15th. That's Father's Day weekend, Friday night and Saturday. Be done about lunch on Saturday. I want to encourage all of the men in the church to prayerfully consider going to the Gridiron Men's Conference. I've been about three or four times. It is an excellent conference to, uh, as men sing the praises of the Lord together and to look to God's Word and to think about what it means to be spiritual leaders in our home and in our community and in our church. And so I'd encourage you to consider that. There's a sign-up sheet in the hallway going towards the offices. If you are interested in signing up, you can either call the church office or sign up on that sheet uh, and uh, mark your calendars. Invite a friend to come with you to this conference. I would highly encourage you to use this as an opportunity to talk to a, a family member or a neighbor or a co-worker who maybe isn't really into church, but invite them to come and, and hear about uh, what God has for, for them. And so uh, even offer to pay their way. That might be a way that you could get somebody to go and be a part of this as well. Also, I have mentioned to you several times about uh, a partnership that I have personally and a partnership that we are developing as a church through an organization called Four Corners Ministries. I sit on the board of that organization and have been honored for about three different times in the last five years to be able to go and demonstrate the gospel to the Acholi people in northern Uganda. Uh, a number of people have asked me about the possibility of taking another trip this year and I am investigating uh, a potential trip in the first week of September uh, of 2019. If you are interested in going to Uganda, if you think that might be something that would interest you, you'd like some more information about that, uh, I will be going and teaching in a pastor training center there, but there will also be opportunities for others who would come along with me to be engaged in some of the ministries there and to just get a first glimpse at the work that God is doing there in northern Uganda. So if you're interested in that, if, if, you, if you pray about that and you're not committing to anything, you're just saying, I'm interested in going and finding out more information, you can see me after church. You can call me at the church office. You can shoot me an email and say, hey, Pastor Matt, I'm interested. If we have several people that are interested, we'll put together a little informational meeting and 
give you some information about what the cost would be and what the dates would be and the things you would need to do to prepare for that. So please pray about your potential involvement in that again to go to Uganda sometime the 1st of September of this year. Well, as we said, we are in uh, the, the book of Philippians today, and I want us to review for a moment where we are in Philippians chapter 1 and, and how we got here. Paul is in a Roman prison awaiting trial, and while he is in prison, he receives a gift from his friends in the church in Philippi, a financial gift to aid him in his ministry while he's there in prison. And it was sent along with a friend of his named Epaphroditus who came to check on Paul and his well-being. Paul thanks them for this gift and sends uh, his friend Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi along with this letter. And in doing so, he shows us the power of Christian brothers and sisters who are partnering together in the advance of the gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul demonstrates that and says that in the first part of Philippians chapter 1 when he says that he is grateful for the Philippians and their partnership in the gospel. And it shows us that, that as brothers and sisters in Christ and as churches even within this city that we partner together in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He prays for them as believers that they would continue to grow in the grace of God. He powerfully declares to them that even in his imprisonment and chains that they do not advance and hinder the advancement of the gospel, but they are actually tools that God is using to demonstrate the gospel. And then as we saw last week, he demonstrates this ultimate win-win attitude when he says to the church, for me to live as Christ and for me to die as gain. And so what a powerful introduction to this letter there in the first 26 verses of chapter 1. And now in light of these powerful truths, Paul begins to turn to a more practical section in the letter where he begins to urge his friends in the church in Philippi to trust in the gospel with even greater faith and he challenges them to live their lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He urges them to be a shining example of the power of the gospel, both in their personal lives as well as the church. And in doing so, in these verses we're going to read in just a second, he is showing us this truth. And the truth is that there is no greater evidence to the power of the gospel than when a group of Christians live redeemed lives together. There is no greater evidence to the world of the truth and the power of the gospel that we affirm than when a group of Christians learn to live the evidence of their redeemed lives together. The central thought in this is found in verse 27 when he starts off by saying, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In light of all the things that Paul has said to them so far about their partnership in the gospel and about how the gospel is advancing even in the midst of his imprisonment, he says, now for you as brothers and sisters in Christ, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's our theme here today is that we would live worthy of the gospel. And so with that in mind, let's read Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Paul says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. So he's talking about this possibility that he might come and visit them again. But he says, Either way, whether I'm able to come and see you or whether I'm not, whether I'm away from you, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted you 
it has been, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul challenges us with some very practical steps about how you and I, now that we have been demonstrated, that we have been changed by the power of the gospel, how we are to live lives publicly that are worthy of the gospel. It brings to mind this question, have you ever thought about how important it is that our daily conduct as Christians is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about the fact that the way that we live our lives on a day-to-day basis says something about Jesus? It says something about what we believe about Christ. Have you ever thought about the necessity of devoting every day of your life to demonstrating to everyone that God places in your path that you are worthy of the unmerited grace of God that Jesus has shown you? We tend to think that because the grace of God is the unmerited favor of God, then the tendency is to say, since since God's grace doesn't come on the basis of my merit, then what we do or what we don't do really doesn't matter. It doesn't take away from the grace of God, which is true. If we can't do anything to merit or earn God's grace, for many people then they say, why should we focus too much on our good works? Don't we just trust in grace? And when we start to talk about good works and we start to talk about the the practical aspect of of the gospel in our lives and striving for good works, aren't we in danger of reverting back to kind of a legalistic form of Christianity? The Bible consistently tells us, however, exactly the opposite. The Bible consistently tells us this truth that good works are the fruit of gospel transformation and not the root of gospel transformation. That good works in our life are the evidence and the fruit that we have been transformed by the gospel, not the agency by which we are transformed. And the Bible tells us that we are not only saved by grace through faith as a gift of God in Ephesians 2.8, but that we are saved for good works which God promised beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. And so it's very natural for Paul not only to, to talk about the powerful grace of God inside of us that is changing us, but how that is demonstrated in our lives as we live lives worthy of the gospel. So how do you and I live in such a way that our lives are a testimonial that we are worth the unmerited favor and grace that God has given us? If grace is not according to our worth or according to our works, then how do we demonstrate that we are worthy of it? And simply put, the worth of the gospel is not in us, it's in the gospel itself. And the value of the gospel is not in those of us who have been transformed but the gospel that has transformed our lives. And so as such, we should be 
we should be living examples of the powerful transformation of the gospel so that even though we don't deserve the grace of God, because the grace of God has transformed us, our lives are a testimonial to the worth of that grace and the value of that grace in our lives. If you notice in Philippians chapter 2, two, Paul says this phrase, to complete my joy. And so as he gives these imperative commands to the church in Philippi about ways that they demonstrate the worth of the gospel, he is saying that there is direct correlation between what is happening among the believers in the church at Philippi and the completion of joy in the life of the Apostle Paul. You see, Paul, as an apostle, had taken great pains to communicate and demonstrate the gospel to the believers in Philippi, and it brings him great joy to see the gospel flourish among them. And I can tell you as a pastor that there is no greater joy to a pastor than to see God's people walking in the truth of the gospel. As a pastor, it brings great joy to see the gospel flourish among a church people and to see that in the gospel chains are broken and in the gospel lives are transformed and in the gospel spiritually dead are brought to life. And so I would encourage us all to do just what Paul is saying here, to bring joy to completion in our lives by committing ourselves to living lives worthy of the gospel. It brings us to this takeaway today in your notes, which is simply this. Christian joy flourishes among a people who deliberately devote themselves to live lives worthy of the Savior who has redeemed them. When we talk about joy being a fruit of the gospel, and we talk about how joy is the overwhelming theme of the book of Philippians, and we talk about how our lives are to be lived in a radical pursuit of the joy of Christ in our lives, Christian joy flourishes in a church among a people of God who together deliberately devote themselves to saying, I want to live a life that is worthy of Jesus Christ who has saved me. And it's as we devote ourselves collectively to understanding that there is something about our life that should be distinctive to testify to the worth and grace of Christ. And it's as we devote ourselves to that that we as a collective group of people will experience a level of Christian joy in our personal lives as well as in our Christian body that we cannot experience otherwise. And so today, real quickly, I want to give you three gospel determinations from this text today. Three determinations, three commands that Paul says to you and me that we need to determine in our lives that, that we want our lives to be a testimonial to the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we do, then here are three ways that we do that. Number one, we determine that we will stand firmly for the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God. We determine in our personal lives as well as as a church body that we will stand firmly for the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Look again at verses 27 through 30 as he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you, to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear 
that I am having. Paul talks in here about striving side by side and he talks about conflict and he talks about suffering and what he's talking to the church to tell us is that one of the ways that we demonstrate that our lives are worthy of the grace of God that he has saved us is is as we stand firm in our lives and say whatever happens in my life it's the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom of God that matters most. Paul is saying that one way that we demonstrate the value of the gospel is that we stand together in the face of opposition and persecution. And so let's unpack this for just a little bit. First, Paul says to them that whatever happens to him, whether he's released from prison and he has a chance to visit them again or whether he never sees them again, he wants to hear a report of the church in Philippi and likely all of his churches that they stand united for the advancement of the gospel. And he knows that the advancement of the gospel is according to the power of God working through the lives of his people. And it is not dependent upon any one person or any one personality, even the Apostle Paul himself. Paul says it's not dependent upon me and my coming there and encouraging you and challenging you. It's not about me. It's about Christ in you. And he talks about, I want to see that whether I'm there or whether I'm not, that I hear of you that you are standing firm with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's a reminder to us that the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ is always advancement and never retreat. It's the gospel alone that is the power of God and to salvation for everyone who believes. And as Peter said in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only hope for the salvation of people on our planet. And so therefore, we must never sound retreat and we must never raise the flag of surrender. But we as the people of God must always stand on the march to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ advances into every corner of this city, into every, every molecule of this planet. Because the nature of the gospel is always to advance and never to retreat. The gospel of Jesus has been advancing for over 2,000 years, beginning as a, as a small band of people meeting together in a room who were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and began to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. And when that Pentecost event happened, the, the church was born and the church began to spread and it has been spreading for 2,000 years. Paul tells us that, that Christ is not dependent upon any one church or any one person to be the sole agency of the gospel. As a matter of fact, all of the churches to which Paul have written, and that we have these words, all of them have disappeared. None of them exist anymore. They were simply conduits of gospel transformation at one time, but they disappeared. And likewise, even the great cathedrals of Europe that were once used to proclaim the hope of the gospel, many of those now sit empty, a shell and a relic of the past, but the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to advance. No matter what, God does not need you, God does not need me, God does not need Central Park Baptist Church. Because the nature of the gospel is that it will continue to advance until every tribe, nation, and tongue has had an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ and respond to Him. The word striving side by side in verse 27 is a military image. And it conjures up the image of a Roman army locking side by side, arm in arm, advancing on its enemies. 
And it's a powerful reminder that there are few things in this world more powerful than a united church locked arm in arms holding forth the gospel to the world. And he says that he asked them to strive for two things. Number one, faith in the gospel. And number two, courage in the gospel. He says, I, I pray that you would, you would with one mind strive by, side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And so when he encourages them to strive for faith in the gospel, this is what I would call gospel clarity. He's asking them to strive to be clear in the doctrines of the faith and to preserve them from decay and dilution. You see, there's a constant pressure in the, in the church to constantly add things to the gospel in order to try to make it more palatable, in order to try to make it more easily received by people. And so there's always this tendency to say that what we need in the church is we need Jesus and more of this, when the reality is that all we need is Jesus. We don't need Christ and the right religious political affiliations. We don't need Christ and a perfect religious resume. We don't need Christ and favor with the culture. Every time we dilute the gospel by adding something to it that is not the gospel, we lose the gospel. And so as the church, we must continually fight for faith in the gospel. We must continue to bring forth clarity about what the gospel is and what Christ has called us to. But then he also says that we need to fight for courage in the gospel to not be frightened by our opponents. It's a reminder to us that we, that, that we will always have opposition to the gospel in this world. You know, I've been a believer in Christ for 30-something years, and like many of you, I've been in prayer meetings where we pray for spiritual revival to take place in our church, spiritual revival to take place in our community. And, and I, we prayed that this last Wednesday night in here, that, that God would bring about a spiritual awakening within our city, and within our, within our church. But while we pray for spiritual revival in our nation, we must never fall victim to the illusion that the gospel is somehow dependent upon nationalistic affirmation. We must never fall victim to the illusion that there will be a time when everyone in our country will gladly affirm the gospel. It's not going to happen. People hate the gospel because it declares to them that their goodness is not good enough and their works are not good enough to overcome their sin problem. And people find that offensive. And if we are true to the nature of the gospel, there will never be a time when everybody says, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. But may they find offense in the gospel and not offense in us as God's people. Paul says that as we find courage in the gospel, and as we say, you know what, this is what my life is built on, this is what I stand on, and as we courageously hold forth the gospel, it is a twofold sign to the world. It is a sign to the church that we are being saved, and it is a sign to the world of its destruction. That's the reason why the world hates a gospel clarity church. It's the reason why it's very easy to join a church where there's not much expected of you. And it's very easy to join a church when it's all about the right combination of entertainment and programs. But when we're clear about what the gospel is, the world can't stand that. And it will always attack faithfulness in the gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul says here that the church has been given two gifts. 
If I were to ask you today, could you, could you make a list today of all the things that you consider to be a gift from God? We'd probably list our families, our spouse, our children, maybe our freedom in our, in our nation. We, we'd list, you know, probably some, some personal blessings that we have, maybe our home or, 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 or you know, the, the church that we attend. But Paul says here, it's been granted to you. You've been given two gifts today as the church. Do you see this here? You've been given two gifts. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, two things. Number one, that you should believe in Him. The faith that you have in Christ today is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And secondly, that you should suffer for His sake. Many of us don't tend to think of persecution and opposition as gifts. Many of us wouldn't say, you know what, one of the greatest gifts of God is that every time I go to work, I have people that hate what I believe. They make fun of me. They ridicule me for what I, what I believe in my faith in Jesus Christ, but I consider that to be a gift. Paul says it has been granted, it has been gifted to you as a follower of Jesus Christ that you would suffer opposition for gospel clarity. And that if you are going to choose to be the kind of person who lives your life as a prism pointing people to Jesus, some people are not going to agree with you because it's a sign of their destruction. So the first determination we have as the people of God in order to live lives worthy of the gospel is that we will stand firmly as a people for the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God and not the advancement of our own personal lives and agendas. Secondly, we must strive purposefully for unity in the body of Christ. May we determine as the people of God if we're going to live lives worthy of the gospel, it will happen as we as God's people strive purposefully for unity in the body of Christ. Notice how Paul says this in verses 1 through 2. It's almost as he's, he's asking a series of questions to the believers in Philippi. He says to them, do you find encouragement in Christ? And they affirm, yes, we find great encouragement in Jesus Christ. And then he says, do you find comfort in the love of Christ that has been demonstrated to you in the gospel? And they affirm, yes. And then he asks, do you and I together participate in the presence of the Holy Spirit among us? And they say, Yes, and then finally he says, do you have affection and sympathy for one another? And do you have affection for me and my imprisonment? And they respond, yes. And so Paul says, then if that's the case, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, if you find encouragement in Christ, if you find Comfort in the love of Christ. If you find participation in the Spirit of God with God's people, then you need to strive for unity in the church. We need to have the same mind. We need to be devoted to the same love. We need to be unified as the church. And this is extremely important for us to dive into and apply as a church because few things testify to the worthiness of Jesus Christ more than a gospel-united church. And few things destroy the credibility of the gospel than a church that is marked by disunity, factions, squabbling, and political power plays. Few things are more of an affront and a, and a criticism of the truth of the gospel than a church that is mired in disunity. One of the greatest pains I have experienced in ministry 
is to see dozens of churches that were once lighthouses of the gospel that have now become fruitless displays because they have been divided by divisions that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have personal friends in ministry that were done wrongly by a church and, and, and terminated because the church didn't have in mind the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we live in Alabama, and one of the things that I've noticed in my time in both Alabama and in Mississippi is that we, we know how to plant churches, but most of the time we plant churches because a, church, a bunch of people just got mad and decided to go start another church, right? The most common church planting method in the state of Alabama is a bunch of people didn't get their way, so they went and started another church. And I see it happen all the time. And so churches divide over personal preferences. They divide over the style of musical preference instead of devoting themselves to simply sing songs about the gospel. What does it really matter whether the, the music meets your preference and because it doesn't meet your preference, you're going to go down and find another church that, that's more your musical style? What does that have to do with Jesus Christ? Is, are the songs biblical? Are the songs pointed to Jesus Christ? If so, that's what matters, not whether it's your style or not. I've seen churches divide over church program offerings where, where they decide they want to start offering this or not offering this anymore and, and, and some people dis disagree and so a bunch of people get mad and they just divide over, over what kinds of Bible studies they're going to do in the church instead of just centering on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches divide over how church finances are being spent instead of being united that all of the resources in the church belong to God and they should all be spent on advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ and not on entertaining the people within the church. I've probably seen three or four dozen church splits in 30-something years of ministry. And I can't remember one single church split that divided over the truth of the gospel. They always divided over the preferences of the people. You see, whenever we, as the people of God, get our eyes off the gospel of Jesus Christ, then our natural tendency is always to turn our eyes inwardly onto ourselves and our personal agendas. Whenever the gospel isn't the clear, central focus of the church, then the natural tendency is to come to church and to start to turn inwardly and to make the church about me and my preferences instead of about Christ and His glory. And when we do, unity suffers, sin advances, and the gospel is stifled. And I think many of us have been a Christian for so long that we've forgotten one central truth of the gospel, and that is that the nature of of gospel transformation is self-sacrifice and death to self. The nature of the gospel is not self-fulfillment, but self-sacrifice. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So when you came to Paul and you said, Paul, what kinds of things do you want to see in the church? Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And so as the gospel calls us to die to self, it also calls us, as the people of God, to fight for unity with one another as gospel-transformed people. 
And so we are called to live lives worthy of the gospel that are marked by sacrificing our personal agendas in order to know that what we do together for Christ is the most important thing. And so therefore, we, we fight to be of the same mind, to have the same love, and to be in full accord with one mind, and that is, what does Jesus Christ want? What would most glorify Him in our lives? Which brings us to the third and final determination. That not only are we going to live lives worthy of the gospel, must we stand firmly for the advancement of the gospel in the kingdom of God and strive purposefully for unity in the body of Christ. But thirdly, we must serve gladly the needs of others with grace and humility. If we're going to live lives worthy of the gospel, it happens as we demonstrate the gospel through serving gladly the needs of others with grace and humility. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Once you have unity in the church, then we're called in verse 3 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I love these verses in verses 3 through 4. As a matter of fact, I would challenge you to commit these verses to memory. Commit them to memory and put them into practice because they are a powerful call for the church of Jesus Christ to serve one another and the community with Christ-centered humility. Can you imagine what it would be like for just a moment? And I think I've only been your pastor at Central Park for about five or six months, and I think unity is a, is a great theme in this church. I find a lot of unity in this church and a lot of, a lot of comfort in this church. But could you imagine what it was like, what it would be like to attend a church where every person in the church put into practice Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4? Can you imagine what that kind of church would be like to attend? And what it would be like in the community? For us to be a people collectively who do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That there's no selfish ambition on our part in anything with our lives, that we do not walk around conceited with pride, but in humility we count others more significant than ourselves. That's hard to do. Because even in our best days, most of us pretty much believe that we're better than most people that we come across. And it's very hard in humility to look at the world around us and say, everybody here is more important than me. And so because of that, I don't want to look only to my interest, but I want to look to the interest of others. Paul uses these words to introduce us to the next section, which we will look at next week on the mind of Jesus Christ. And he reminds us that if we are to live lives worthy of the gospel... That if you and I are to go out of here and be a people of God whose lives demonstrate the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would be most visibly demonstrated when the world sees a church where God's people do nothing from selfish ambition, but who humbly commit to looking out to the needs and interests of others. In other words, the nature of the gospel is that we put others first. We reject pride. And we choose to walk in humility. And we understand that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ continues 
to bring us back to our own personal insufficiency in Christ in order to crucify our pride and to drive us to humble dependence upon Him. The nature of the gospel is you don't have what it takes. And because you don't have what it takes, you are dependent upon one who does, and His name is Jesus Christ. And there is no way that you can look at the cross on which your Savior died and walk away from that with your chest puffed out and say, that must be a pretty big deal. (laughs) When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, counted vain. When we are truly humbled by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand that we do not live for ourselves. We live to glorify God and to demonstrate the gospel by serving the needs of other people. When we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand that we follow a Savior who said that greatness in the kingdom of God isn't measured by how well you are served by others, but by how well you serve the needs of others. And could it be that when the culture looks at the church of Jesus Christ as a whole that what they see are agents of selfish personal ambition more than humble servants of Christ. Could it be the reason why we have empty seats in our church today and empty seats in churches all throughout the city of Decatur is because we don't see more people coming into our church because they haven't seen us serving in the community. Could it be that when people look at the church, they think the people in that church, they're only about themselves. And how do we as a church begin to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ by going out of here and serving the needs of other people? Not doing it for personal glory, not doing it for thank yous, not doing it for anything other than helping to be a conduit and a prism by which they see Jesus Christ. If you and I are going to live lives worthy of the gospel, we must follow the example of our Savior who said in Matthew chapter 20 that he humbly came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if we're going to live lives worthy of the gospel, it comes as we gladly serve the needs of others with grace and humility. My prayer as pastor is that one day when someone in the city of Decatur brings up the name of Central Park Baptist Church, they, someone will say, I don't go to that church, but I'll tell you what, the people in that church are fully devoted to their Savior. And that will happen as we stand firmly for what the gospel is in the kingdom of God. We strive purposefully for unity in the church and we serve gladly the needs of others. And the reason why you and I can live a life worthy of the gospel is because you and I trust in a Savior who is worthy of the gospel. We serve a king who willingly gave his life on the cross to pay our sin debt so that you and I can experience the grace and the forgiveness of God. We serve a king who not only calls us to humble ourselves to serve others, but demonstrated that by doing that on our behalf. We're going to look at that next week in Philippians chapter 2 as we look at this this great passage that talks about what Jesus has done for you and me. But before you can truly live a life that is worthy of the gospel, you must first trust in the truth of the gospel. You must first trust. Place all of your faith and your reliance and your dependence upon the truth of the gospel. And that is simply this. That you are a person who was created by God in His image with incredible worth and value. But the reality of it is is that even on your best days, you fall short of the glory of God. 
The Bible says that you and I have a sin problem. That we have this tendency to take life and turn it inwardly and to do things to live for ourselves. And when we do, we sin and we fall short of Him. And that the wages of our sin is death and eternal separation from Him. But the gift of God, according to Ephesians, the gift of God is the Lord Jesus Christ who came to live the life of perfect obedience to God that you could not live and to die on the cross, the death reserved for you. And that by faith in that truth, by faith that you don't have what it takes, but He does. And today you want to place your faith and trust in Him. And you want to receive grace and forgiveness that you can do that by confessing your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In just a moment, we're going to give an opportunity, an invitation for you to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we sang earlier, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But the blood of Jesus is available here today for you if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song. We're going to give you an opportunity as the church to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ today. And if you need to come today to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we want to offer you that invitation. You come, you see me, you say, Pastor Matt, I just need to get right with God. I need to give my life to Him. We have people that will share with you how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and leave here today changed. Maybe you need to come for some other reason. Maybe you need to come this morning because God's leading you to join Central Park Baptist Church. Maybe you need to come and just pray. Just kneel here and say, God, I've lived my life for myself for a long time now, but as a, as a follower of you, I want to live my life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By your grace and your power, will you do that today? Maybe you just need to come and pray that where today. Whatever it is, you respond as the Lord leads. Father, thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. And now, God, may we live in such a way that our lives are testimonies to the worth of the gospel, to the value of Jesus Christ. May you do that, Holy Spirit, by your power in us today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Respond as the Lord leads you.